Welcome to episode seven of Consuming Jung. I am Logan, and I'm here once again with my friend Tim. Hey, folks. This week we read chapter seven, uh, titled The Soul of Man. Yeah, and um, there was a lot I liked in this one. Um, one of the things that he, that keeps coming back uh, is just the whole idea of modern man not really being in control of himself and he he's he he keeps stating this as almost a law of nature or maybe just a law of human nature anyway uh and he kind of frames it as something that modern man is uncomfortable with which if that's true uh then certainly it would make modern man uncomfortable um but he he just i just really like the way he's talking around that and uh describing it and that was one of the themes you mentioned just before we started the call yeah, that's great. But it's surprising to me that he relies on Western myths because these ideas became more clear to me from like Eastern myths or Eastern philosophies where they talk about that uh, more coherently or more directly. Like they talk about what it's like for a thought to arise in the conscious, you know, whereas in Western ideology and Western religion you have more of like the story and you have the symbols in it so i thought that was surprising he he does a lot of it feels like preaching almost he's still a psychologist he's still a scientist but he's very much describing how valuable religious thinking is and you know how that ties into man's psychology right he, he talks, I really like his analogy for uh, Western civilization. He talks about how man, like an individual man, is similar to, to the West and how the West has entered into this point where it has these aggressive tendencies where it, it imposes dictators on countries. It has like deceitful tactics. It's built up an arsenal of nuclear weapons as well as incredibly powerful conventional militaries with aircraft carriers and and ma- like massive missiles. And it sort of convinces itself that it's doing all of these things for virtuous reasons, but the East, the ideological enemy, will then represent back or reflect back like, hey, you're doing this awful thing and you're doing this evil thing and you're actually, you say you're good, but here's all the ways in which you're evil I thought that was a really, he he ties that back to an individual and his shadow. And this is the first time we're hearing the term shadow uh, in this book, which is that the individual also has all these things that they do. They, They say they're good. They think they're good. But in reality, they do many things that are bad for them, that are bad for their society. And we're reminded of those bad things with like neurosis, with tics, perhaps with dreams and I thought that was a really powerful analogy. Yeah. Yeah. And as you mentioned, it's the first time he's mentioned the shadow. And that's probably the most, I think it's probably the most popular Jungian idea. At least it's the most, uh, if, any, if anyone knows anything about Jung, they typically know about the shadow. That's his most, mm. it's the most famous idea that at least is ascribed directly to him. Uh, who knows how many of his ideas just got, uh, you know, uh, sort of, uh, perpetuated through other thinkers but yeah the, the shadow is very union and yeah he he talks a bit about the individual shadow and then he sort of makes that metaphor of the west has its own shadow uh, represented in in they in quote marks uh, they being the east and he also makes the point in that same area where both the west and the uh, and the evils that the West sees in the East are are sort of motivated by the same story, which he also says is an archetype, and that's the idea of, uh, well, the the kingdom of God on earth or or God's kingdom on earth. I don't remember the exact phrase, but utopia, um, mm. some some golden age that we will eventually get to. And uh, he says communism has this quite uh, blatantly. Uh, you know, communism is clearly trying to get to this golden age, but the West really isn't much different. Uh, in the story it's telling you know we in the west have this story of advancement through technology i guess chiefly um 
but but it's still the same uh, story of we're going to get to this golden age and um, at almost any cost. Although again, communism and and that whole set of beliefs maybe is a bit more blatant and maybe you could even say more immature about that. Mm. Immature, yeah, I would I would I like that word to describe communism. <laughs> now, how would you how the shadow? How would you define the shadow? Yeah, I guess it's just. For me, it's simply the parts of yourself that you don't want to look at and you don't want to deal with. Um, so, I mean, I think it has a lot of uh, overlap with the idea of the unconscious, but maybe, you know, the unconscious is pretty neutral. You know, it's this vast kind of overall neutral structure and the shadow maybe is the parts of the unconscious that are actually quite negative and that maybe exist partially because you don't want to look at them and that kind of gives them a, a certain energy. That's how I would describe the shadow. And yeah. along, along with that idea, sort of implicit in that idea, if you, if you ever talk to somebody and they're telling you about this Jungian idea of the shadow, implicit in that idea, or maybe explicit as they're telling you, is that it's better to look at your shadow and, and delve into your shadow. Not that it'll ever go away, you'll never be able to defeat it, but that there's some significant value in um, in that uh, attitude, I suppose, of going and addressing your shadow as much as you're able. Right, right. The the integration of the shadow. Yeah, right. Jung uses the words the dark side of our nature to describe the shadow. And in this mm -hmm. chapter, he hasn't talked about integrating it or or the value of of even observing it. But mm. it, it's yeah, I, you, you almost don't hear the idea of the shadow without that that part mentioned as well. Like you need to face your demons. And it's a it's a horribly difficult conversation to have. You have to I mean, certainly people have it with their therapists. Uh, but if you've you know, if you try to have it with a friend, even a friend that you have like a deep friendship with, I have had those conversations, perhaps in a, in a selfish way. I just my mind was there. I needed to talk about my shadow, although I didn't think about it in that those terms. You know, I hadn't heard of that idea. Um, but I read enough Dostoevsky books where the characters do that. And, you know, they talk about how they feel like insects, you know, or like what, you know, how their demons manifest themselves. And like in reading those novels, it made me realize everyone must have this everyone has these sort of uh un not even undesirable but sort of unmentionable aspects of themselves things that they they not only can't admit to others they can't even admit to themselves and mm -hmm. but sometimes i would get to a point for for whatever reason and it strikes me looking back as somewhat immature or selfish to have done so i'm not sure yet of what the best context is for, for thinking through your shadow. Maybe you have to pay someone, but that also seems kind of weird to me. You have to pay a therapist. You can't do it with, with a good friend. Um, but to, to finish the point, I've had people recoil when you reveal your shadow. They, they look at you, I think, with, with some new eyes, with some sense of perhaps disgust, or, or, or you know, at the very least, they're encountering something new that's not good about you. And it rarely was a fruitful thing to do i find it was a bit like of a of a of a faux pas although there's there's certainly a better word for it because it was more significant than that hmm. but uh, i don't know how to conclude that point it seems important to to think about your shadow and look at it but it's very almost impossibly difficult to do and there are huge consequences doing it socially yeah well and i imagine that when you share when you're sort of okay if, if it is your shadow it's something that even you are uncomfortable with and then you share that with somebody else you know even if they they could have a reaction that that they could simply not know how to react it could be so out of left field because not only do they not suspect it but you could barely admit it in yourself and then now you're bringing it out and so they could have this reaction where I don't even know what to say, or like they don't even know what facial expression to make. And then that, even if even if they don't have a you know a new negative judgment about you, it could it could lead to this kind of a uncomfortable 
um, situation. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I guess I, I typically find value in, sh in sort of exploring the shadow or, I mean, in a way that term almost seems a little, uh, well, it makes me uncomfortable to use, but when I'm talking about the things that scare me, it's, it's typically more rewarding if I'm with someone I'm extremely close with. So like a girlfriend or a really close friend. Um, and then beyond that very small circle, I don't really get much reward from, I don't even know if I've really ever tried sharing that with anyone outside of that circle. Hmm. I think it's typically the same with me. Um, there is a few, I'm sort of, it's vague in memory, but kind of imagine circumstances where sometimes it's kind of liberating to confine in confine in a stranger you know that you meet at a bar for instance and you're both kind I'll of confide you know, more drunk there's something about that that is even more free because you won't have a continuing relationship with them although oh, that right. i think is also kind of rare for myself Sorry, I'm stuttering. Well, I, I want to say something and it's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't quite figure it out right now. Well, for me, that kind of connects to this idea of man not being in control again. Uh, we have this shadow and it kind of, it, it has an influence and it seems to come out of nowhere because our conscious selves are ignorant of it. And maybe there's a, a level of um, unconscious deliberateness to that, if that even makes sense. So you have the shadow mm. and you're kind of looking away from it, almost willfully blind. And then that will drive you in certain directions. It seems like, yeah. So I think we could both agree anyways, that this shadow exists and it's maybe tricky in how you face it. And we certainly, I th Jung, I think is saying that the way to face it is with religion because he then talks a lot about how the salve for these feelings, he doesn't, he just switches topics. I don't know if he says it directly, um, but he seems to be suggesting, or maybe I'm inferring that religion or these like deep symbols in our cultures, in our not even in our cultures, in our instinctual psyche mm. are the solution to hmm. uh, this problem. What do you think of that? Well, I, I guess it seems reasonable to expect that if we've evolved, certainly if, the shadow will have been with us for as long as we've had a psyche and any uh, cultural wisdom that we would have had, whether it's in cultural stories like the stories in the Bible or something even more deeply rooted in our biology, it seems like it would be advantageous to have that some kind of innate wisdom for how to deal with that. And that might link to the you know stories of the hero. You know, the hero faces the shadow very much so. Um, and so I I, yeah, that's my, that's my thought there. It seems reasonable to expect that we would have some kind of, um, innate ability to deal with that, or maybe even, you know, I think people are fascinated by the shadow. I, I think we have a, uh, tendency to look away from it, but I also think that people generally have kind of a morbid fascination with it at the same time. And, you know, maybe in any given situation, one wins out over the other, but there, I think that there is a fascination to the darker things inside of us. For us would you agree with that yeah and i i think i got this idea from jordan peterson and i'm sure he got it from Jung. Mm. Uh, but he talks about your full potential is reached when you integrate the shadow it's like don't think you're so good don't delude yourself into thinking that you are innocent and kind and good for the world like you are a human being and these are sort of my words more so now but you're a human being. You have the capacity for evil in you. And, but that same capacity, which, you know, can control your body and your mind and your will, um, can be used to accomplish things that are useful, but it, it sort of brings out the, the demon in you, but mm -hmm. that demon can be harnessed in a way that your sort of lukewarm niceness couldn't possibly be used to like solve complicated uh, difficult problems, especially problems where you have to sort of be unfair, you know, in a microcosm to somebody else for the, like an overall good, something, something like that. Mm. Uh, you know, Jordan Peterson talks about, there's this part in the Bible that says the meek shall inherit the earth. And he actually makes the point that that's kind of um, a misleading translation because that what, 
where they use the word meek, it means something closer to those who have know how to use swords but keep them sheathed shall inherit mm. the earth. And so mm. the idea there, as he describes it, is that if you know how to bare your teeth, if you know how to sort of be a monster, I think that's the phrase he uses a lot, then you're actually able to accomplish more in the world and even more good if you incorporate that uh, sort of ability to be a monster into yourself. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. I, I And I'm hesitant to embrace those ideas because they're so counter to everything I believe that's good about myself. But you know, I'm, I'm, I'm running into these ideas that like, I think Machiavelli is probably the most famous person to express them where you can't just be morally good. Like if you're tell the truth and are kind, you will be stamped out by people who outwardly pretend to be those things. But then inwardly, you know, will use deceit or use um, blackmail or use not not so blackmail, but use um, sort of the monster within them to get more power and then they use that power for their own purposes which may not be good you as the good person need to be able to understand these underlying psychologies these underlying like evil tendencies of people so that you can defend yourself against them perhaps even use them to whatever degree yeah. uh that hopefully with the intent of having good aims it's it's a tricky thing i think you're on a very morally loose path at that point or at least that's my conception of it right now yeah and you know incorporating the the shadow or the darker side or the monster or whatever doesn't even necessarily i mean i think it i think you have to be prepared to do these things with a darker hint uh darker hue but they don't even need to be dark i mean for example if you you know if i understand about myself that i'm motivated by pride i could actually just simply use that to understand myself better orient myself to where every week I'm actually doing more work because I understand that if I have, you know, if, if, if I do XYZ goal, I'll be proud of myself. And if I can align myself more fully with that, you know, to be prideful is sort of a, a I don't know if it's a dark thing, but it's not, not exactly something I'm proud. I'm not proud to be driven by pride. And yet, if I understand that about myself, I will actually be more powerful in all of my conscious pursuits. Yeah, there's some, there seems to be nothing like pride is one of the soft sins, hmm. uh, but you can't necessarily shake it. Can you just introduce a more humble character into your life? Maybe after a lot of effort and determination, the path of less resistance, which is probably the path that will be more effective in your life, is to incorporate that, understand yourself in that way, not to pretend you're not that way, because then you'll just always be spinning spinning your wheels, not understanding why you can't make progress in life, but understanding your character and what motivates you and then using it in a way that you do find useful. Yeah, I would agree with that. Okay. Well, let's move on to some other topics here. Just looking around for what is near here conceptually. Well, how about the religion stuff? So moving on to religion, I thought it was kind of, it's still a bit surprising to me how strong of a case Jung makes for religion but i suspect for you it's kind of that there's not something surprising about that or that it kind of follows with everything else that he's saying well it definitely it's wouldn't say it's not surprising i mean i definitely noticed in this section in particular he it, it, it i would almost say he came out in in favor of religion in a way that was quite a bit stronger than in the previous ones um well in fact there's this particular quote i have um He's talking about St. Paul, and he makes the point that St. Paul, you know, you could look back and call him a megalomaniac because he believed that he was a messenger for God. But if you if you look at what he did, he was actually a much more impressive figure because of it. And the quote is, the myth that took possession of him made him something greater than a mere craftsman. And that, I think, I think that's such a such a great distillation of at least the utility of religion you know even if you don't get into whether or not it's true and, and what that could even mean at least that is a pretty solid argument that at least in one case this man was possessed by this myth and, and i would love to say this meme you know it took over his brain and it kind of actually magnified him in a way that we are historically grateful for i actually don't know much about saint paul i really don't know what he did but um i don't know here he's a great guy <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think he may have 
Gosh, what did he do? He He's either the one who baptized Jesus. No, that's probably John. Okay, let me just look it up real quick. St. Paul. Paul. Okay, my hunch is that he's the one who was like one of the first apostles of Christianity and like spread it like Christ was the son of God and so forth. Yes. But yeah, let's... let's so. He is. Um, he's the um, commonly known as Saint Paul. He's the Paul the Apostle. Apostle. Um, and I'm just trying to find what he's sort of known for. Writings, views, influence. Looks like he just wrote a lot. I mean, obviously, he wrote part of the Bible. Um, it says, okay, on the Wikipedia, it says. Paul's influence on Christian thinking arguably has been more significant than any other New Testament author. Um, hmm. Okay. Well, so, you know, I mean, whether or not Paul really did the world a favor, I, I suppose, really hinges on how you feel about Christianity. But uh, I suppose you could still say without much argument that um, he certainly made a larger impact, a more significant impact, because he was, uh, you could say, possessed by this myth or possessed by this meme. See, I think something about that, that's clearly true. The beliefs or the ideas that we have can tap into the full potential of our being. Like mm. there's some people that can run over a hundred miles, right? Straight. I don't know what they're thinking, but <laughs> they're tapping into something, some kind of belief that as their body is yelling at them, like you're dying, I'm dying, stop, stop, stop. Right, they are able to keep going, and so clearly, I, we human beings are far more powerful than what we than what we act out in our lives because we see the evidence of other human beings who have similar, you know, resources as us do incredible things that make our jaws drop, hmm. and you know that's not you know that's easy to see physically because like how can my body ever do that? But then also the capacity to suffer like in the case of Viktor Frankl right he he went mm. through uh survived the Nazi concentration camps and he he talks about if if you can find a why then you can bear almost any how that's right. that's a tenet of his philosophy but then you have people like St Paul or even Jesus Christ himself you know i think there was a sentence about Jesus Christ could have been an average carpenter but the idea that he was the son of God, if, if he was even motivated by that idea, I guess I don't really know, or if other people said it about him, mm. uh, could make him as famous as he is now, something that, that billions of people on the planet know his name um, mm -hmm. because of what he did, or at least the stories that were told about him. That all seems true. I just worry that as soon as you assign any specific element to a story, but like beyond the feeling of it, then you're at you're you're kind of creating a falsehood immediately. You're kind of straying from the perfect feeling of it, that meaning, as soon as you assign it anything that's sort of what I feel arbitrary. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have a I have a question for you then, and I hear what you're saying. So, what do you think about the idea that some truths can't actually be told explicitly, and you have to pass them out in stories and just to sort of frame the question a bit more, imagine that you had a society that passed down Bible-like stories, uh, but there was just the common understanding that they're not literally true, but they do contain a more metaphorical truth. Would that, does that scenario alleviate a lot of your concern with um, organized religion? Or is there still something lingering there that makes you uncomfortable? There is something lingering there uh, it, that makes me uncomfortable. There, it's They definitely have... I think the term is an efficient frontier for communicating truths. Mm -hmm. They have found these stories. And I would say some of the stories in the Bible are perfect. I think changing a single word, you know, would, would diminish them in some way. Like they are just boiled down, especially this Cain and Abel. What a mm -hmm. perfect story. It's so short and it communicates so much about, uh, uh, about the human spirit. I think there's something useful there. And yet I, I feel that I would hmm, that, that you've stumped me a little bit because I can't think of a more efficient way to tell those truths. And yet I don't feel like we're dealing with, we haven't quite grasped the truth 
either, that there's some falseness that you have to stomach that I don't like that, you know, and I'm not just saying do nothing about it. I'm saying that given how much thought I've put into it, I feel that I'm more comfortable in not knowing the truth mm. and saying like, oh, well, this, this could be a, you know, something approaching the truth, the story of Cain and Abel, but is it the truth? No, mm. I don't know what the truth is. And I'm more comfortable with that not knowing than accepting the story is true. Right. Okay, right. You know, I've heard um, from at least one atheist, or I, I don't know if he's, you know, capital A atheist, but this guy doesn't believe in Christianity or God. And he was saying that when he has kids, he's going to use religion or Christianity as a starting point. And that is really interesting to me. And just what you're saying about it, not being the truth, but sort of having some truth. I'm not sure if that was exactly the words you used, but um, it's almost like it's a good starting point or it's such a good approximation that maybe you could start from there. You know, you could you could sort of take some stories from the Bible, pass it down to your your tiny children. And as they grow, they would grow out of it, almost like a Santa Claus thing, although I'm sure that would ruffle some <laughs> feathers of, a, of a, any kind of Christian audience to, to make that comparison. Um, but. But it. it as you say, it's such an incredibly, you could say efficient, although even that cheapens it somehow, but we'll say for now, it's such an efficient way to tell whatever that truth is. Um, yeah. There, I mean, it's certainly good enough to keep around, I think. It's tough because I felt that when I finally got to a point where I can fully reject the ideas that I learned from Christianity. It felt like a huge burden was lifted off my back mm. because when you're a kid, you actually believe in hell, like, right. like, and not in the spiritual sense where like a drug addict, you know, that's sharing needles and being attacked by other homeless people, uh, mm. is in hell, but more so, Hey, if I don't do the right thing morally, like if I tell a lie, if I just act out my human nature, right, we're all sinners, like the more advanced ideas, like, we're all sinners and we need, you know, through Christ, we're still salvation. That's a little harder for it to land. But mm -hmm. the idea of heaven and hell is apparent. And I think every child must imagine themselves burning in hell. And that's a very, it's a horrifying thing. You know, it doesn't, it's not free, these stories. I think psychologically, mm. they leave, uh, they leave some scar tissue that maybe is useful because certainly we want to avoid hell in life. We don't want to destroy our lives in pursuit of of drugs or money or something like that um, but i don't think the child is sophisticated enough to understand that level of it but they do inherent um frustrating ideas as a result so it's not it's not yeah. without a cost to indoctrinate our young with a very specific set of stories yeah <clears throat> you said you had the phrase it, they're not free that really struck me i think you're right um I think you, you know, any, maybe especially in the context of having kids and raising them, you, it, to be, to be responsible insofar as you've, you've started thinking down this road, you would have to really weigh the costs of telling your kid this story where it's like Santa Claus, but there's an evil version too. <laughs> and he doesn't just leave coal in your stocking. You know, he puts <laughs> you, he puts you in burning, like he puts you in fire forever. That's, that's really intense. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, I, you know, if I suddenly had some kids and I was raising them and I had to make decisions right now, I, I don't really even know yet if I would introduce Christian concepts. But if I did, I think I would probably not talk about hell as a literal place. You know, I, I think I would really try to couch that in more metaphorical terms and say things like, you know, there are certain things where if you do them, you'll end up in a hellish place. Maybe I would say something like that. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree that um, to give something that's a bit too, you know, farther literal, further in the literal direction than that would leave scars and, and have a cost. Yeah, certainly. But at the same time, you there is a strong point that I think you're you're making, which is you can't just take your adult framework like the mm. the. All, here's all the philosophy books that I've read, you know, and tried to <laughs> condense that into a child's mind. They'll just reject it. It's too complicated, whereas stories do have a place in them, especially mm. if we believe what Jung is saying, that there's an instinctual 
uh, understanding of certain symbols that even a child could probably pick on on like elements in the Christ story, you know, and then mm. the monster or the hero overcoming the monster. Yeah. So I that, can't actually really... offer a good. I so I can I can reject the the idea of telling Christian stories, but I can't actually offer a good child raising um, substitute. So I'll, I'd have to think about that. Like, what is effective? You can't just here's what Socrates said about what it means to be good. That there's no yeah. way that'll land. Yeah. I I something just clicked in my head, and that's just that you know if we do come sort of pre-installed with these archetypes these patterns of storytelling and you have kids they'll they'll have those ready to receive certain stories and so then as a parent to boot you could almost say like to bootstrap a reasonable ethical system you could tell your kid the story of jesus christ and then that's going to just like snap into their archetypal expectation of a hero myth and then and that will that will just accelerate them maybe far more efficiently than anything else could into a, you know, a good starting point for an ethical framework. Yeah, th there's something there. I, I think, to be honest, I would probably have to tell my children, I think I would have to tell them, not have to, I would see it as wise to tell them the stories from the Bible, like Cain and Abel. Mm -hmm. uh, um, but then there's some that I, like, if I don't, I just love that story, but there are some like the Garden of Eden that story is filled with so much weird stuff that I just don't like it. Like the, the creation of earth in seven days, like none of that feels yeah. useful. And maybe I'm not being uh, sufficiently respectful of like the poetic beauty of it and how it may be like, it's beautiful to say that the light is separated from the darkness. Like mm. it's not complete nonsense. Obviously it's, it's, it's the fact that it survived this long says there's something true in it, but you know, I think I'd be selective about which stories to tell yeah. based on my my uh, understanding of, of which ones are, are more true than others and less less gobbledygook, less of the sort of mysticism that I'm trying to get away from. Right, right. I, I think that's that's the right approach. And, you know, in today's sort of evolving uh, philosophical systems, you know, we're we're entering into postmodern thought and. Postmodern thought says basically that all of our modern certainties are should be questioned. And one response you could have to that is to go back to all these traditional thoughts. But I think the better response probably is to find some balance. And so um, to, I think, probably to, to raise a kid with a literal interpretation of the Bible has significant damages. And then to raise a kid without any, you know, while, while sort of rejecting everything in the Bible and not, and maybe even guarding them from any kind of exposure to the Bible, maybe wouldn't lead to the same kind of damage, but you would be depriving them. So I think there's a balance to be struck there. And maybe that's, maybe that's part of what humanity is kind of trying to figure out right now. What is the right balance between our modern, brave, you know, secular, objective man who can control nature, uh, but balance that with something a little bit more humble? I suppose. Yeah, I, I feel kind of, um, what's the word, sheepish maybe about even offering advice or not offering advice, but like having a hot take on, on raising <laughs> kids. You know, I was a former child myself. Right. Um, but I think it is, it's probably laughable to any parents when they thought they, they probably had an idea of what it was like, how, how formal and wise they would be uh, to right. in raising their child and like, you know, what actually happens when your child is throwing a tantrum yeah. uh, in a supermarket well, a, over a candy bar and how wise you can be in that moment. Right, right. Well, it's a good context to think of these things because you have a young mind, uh, you know, and I think certainly our, our musings here should be taken with a lot of salt and they're pretty theoretical. But um, but it's a good context to consider the question, you know, what are the what are what are the uses of these myths? And that is how we were introduced to them, you know, as children, mm -hmm. uh, even if we were introduced to them as 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 untrue, like let's say we were raised by atheist uh, parents, then even then we encounter these as children. So I think it makes a little bit of sense to consider them in that context. But uh, anyway, maybe we can move on a bit here. Yeah. Unless you had... What do you think mm -hmm. about uh, intuition, the Jung's discussion about intuition in this chapter? Yeah, well, uh, I, I, 
he continued on the theme of, um, let's say, painting the merits of intuition and kind of maybe uh, urging us to not put so much faith in logic. But then he had an interesting twist um, partway through the chapter, which I quite liked. And that is, and he didn't really spend so much time on it at all, but he said that intuition only really becomes knowledge when you can put it into logical terms and explain it. And he kind of, uh, he said, you know, we need intuition. And in this, and he, he really said this when he was uh, talking in the context of interpreting someone's dream. He said, you really need intuition. Um, and, he, and he said that, you know, when I uh, have a patient, I always try to start from, I don't even know the ABCs here. Um, and he, he really relies almost not at all, it seems, on his um, sort of theoretical constructs and all of his logical uh, machinery. Um, but then he says, but, you know, to, to, to make it useful and to communicate it and to consider it knowledge, you can't just leave it in these, this vague intuitive state. You actually have to put it in through this logical machine. Um, that was very cool. And, and it's, you can almost distill that whole relationship to, down to intuition being put through logic becomes knowledge. So there's three concepts in that really interesting um, relationship there. And if I may once again refer to uh, The Master and His Emissary, that book on the uh, left and the right brain, um, he makes a similar point there where the, the left brain is extremely logical um, and, and it's the right brain then that sort of sees the new information. But when you integrate the new information, it's actually that the right brain has sort of communicated that to the left brain and then you have a new framework in your left brain. And that's, that's when you can call it knowledge. So that's an interesting uh, parallel there. I'd love to read that book. Yeah, I'd love to understand that relationship more. And that, that strikes me as true from what I've, or like reasonable from what I've heard about the brain so far. But yeah, the, the, the value of intuition is when we're trying to interpret something that's really quite complex, it's not surprising that some people think their dreams are meaningless because they are quite difficult to interpret. I think that's at least part of it. You have all these symbols and then symbols can have different meanings and it's, it's quite difficult, but you also can't get there with some kind of system of quantifying, like how we would quantify animals with biology and like, here's their species and family and genus. Mm -hmm. There's not really, doesn't seem like he's saying, I think he's saying there's not a scientific method for doing this. You mm -hmm. have to rely on your in intuition, which comes from your unconscious it's that same unconscious processor running in the background to sort of see the the glaring piece of evidence which an intelligent person can like lay out the dream and like just like in great detail and look up what these symbols mean in different cultures and in that process they might miss a very obvious thing that if they were just sort of relaxed their intuition would spot and bring to the mm. forefront of their consciousness so yeah, but the diff oh, go ahead well, that just reminds me of something else he said, where um, he says, even in physics, even the, the development of physics, you know, this hard nosed field relies on intuition to actually make progress. And then once you you've made this intuitive leap, then you can actually go back over this ground logically and prove it. And in theory, you could have reached it logically as well. But it's actually intuition that does that, that leap in the first place. Yeah, I love that. That even the most hard of sciences, aside from mathematics, you have people like Einstein providing this actually quite intuitive theory of relativity where space time bends, just like, you know, a trampoline bends under different masses, but space time bends. You can picture that, you can see it in geometries, but it seems almost impossible for someone to have gone through some kind of rigorous structure to get there. It's, mm. it's, yeah, definitely. Um, to I think of what I was just wanted to the point I wanted to make about intuitions that that they have a sort of possible downside or, or pitfall to them is that mm. they might seem satisfying on their own, but then they they have the they might not be rigorous. So you might mm -hmm. settle for a more vague intuition that you could actually develop more if you then apply your your logical the logical side of your brain 
And he even right. talks about you have to understand what intuition is itself, which he doesn't describe here per se. Maybe he described it in a preceding chapter or will describe it more. But you have to understand the process of intuition, which I think is is kind of what I said, the unconscious, the processor. Hmm. Interesting. What do you think of his idea that the the scientific mind, or maybe even says the modern mind, finds information it doesn't understand to be a nuisance or i think he, he, even at the end he says that the, the modern mind hates things it doesn't understand <laughs> yeah i thought that was funny because it struck me as just so true and i think hate is the right word mm. i kind of understand it from perspective of the brain wanting to save energy you know when it mm. un encounters things that it doesn't like it just says like, I'm not going to spend the hour to rationally think through and draw up diagrams and, mm. you know, uh, interview myself about what is true here. I'm just going to not like it and then focus on being hungry or something like that. I yeah. think it's just the brain being lazy to just hate a new idea that then like destroys what you thought you believed. Right. And, you know, that that could totally be a, an adaptive behavior in a lot of contexts. You know, if you're focused on any pursuit, let's say you're hunting an animal, you actually don't want to be distracted. You want to be focused only on the things that are relevant and only on the things that fit into your frame of reference. And to the extent that you can do that, that's certainly useful uh, in a lot of contexts. Well, what do you think? I, I actually feel like I'm satisfied with our discussion, but do you have any other ideas you want to bring up? Um, no, I think that's sort of it. Uh, well, there's one quote I liked. It doesn't really fit into anything, but it's I just, it's one of the more beautiful quotes, I think, in this section. He says, life is a battleground. It always has been and always will be. And if it were not, so existence would come to an end. And I just love that. It seems tr like I believe it, even though he's actually kind of just stating it w with almost no um, argumentation behind it, especially the, the last part. If it were not uh, a battleground, then it would come to an end. That seems to fit my worldview today, where there's something about life that makes struggle an, an, an essential part of it, an inescapable part of it. And that if the struggle were to go away, that would somehow mean death, actually, or uh, like you wouldn't even call that existence. And that yeah. sort of connects to this idea that I've been encountering, which is that to, to be human is to be dissatisfied and to, and to <laughs> suffer. And if you, you, you'll get these glimpses of satisfaction, but they're not really 100% and they're not they don't last. And it's like 1% or less of our lives we spend being satisfied. It's almost like that's not really what we're here for. So that's interesting to me. We're not here to be said. That's, that's, uh, yeah. And your unpacking of it actually was, was useful in my understanding it further. Cause yeah, it just strikes me as true, but I like the, the additional idea that we're meant to be dissatisfied or like we seem to design our lives and our biology and, and all of these forces conspire to lead us to dissatisfaction over and over and over again. Like so much yeah. of life is frustrating in a way that's like deranging, but then it's like, Oh, I get to fall asleep, you know? So I get yeah, to right. disconnect from unconscious. Like, Oh, this, this, uh, this Sunday, this ice cream Sunday, like I get to enjoy all these calories. Like it's worth <laughs> it. You know what? It was worth it to get yeah. the money and to, yeah. So, you know, a great, a great example is video games or just games in general. Games are where we literally sit down and we say, you know, there's not, my life is not complicated enough. I need to make this a little bit more complicated. So you fire <laughs> up a video game that makes you think hard for two hours, or you go play sports and where you work, you know, and you have goals and you're no longer satisfied. So that's, I mean, if there, if you need any more evidence that we're that that dissatisfaction is like in human nature, just look at how we entertain ourselves. We literally invent problems, at least in a certain way, a certain definition of the word problems. There's this. Uh, I'm working on a blog post right now on a quote. I can't. I wish I should remember the guy who said it, but it's something to the effect of, "It takes a lot of inner resources to tolerate a life of leisure." And that's something you see like wealthy people act out is they they get everything you could want in terms of wealth. And then, you know, by extension, you can afford any sort of material comfort. But if you eliminate the struggle, they'll invent new 
sort of idiotic struggles for themselves. You can see the problems of a rich person and just like be disgusted by the level of the problems because they're so infantile. Um, But it's because like their mind just has, seems like it kind of goes berserk when there's not a struggle to be overcome. Hmm. Yeah. Or people who retire when they're old and then they kind of, it seems like some of them just go downhill temperamentally after that. They're just kind of get more bitter and it's a shame because it seems to me like when you get when you retire when you're that old you you actually well you're as you grow older you become less good at learning things that's that's actually I, so mm-hmm. as I understand it, that's actually a biological truth our our brain actually loses uh, plasticity uh, even though I think it's called our crystallized intelligence increases that's like the things we know but our ability to learn actually goes down and of course you can see this comparing very young children because they they can learn languages extremely quickly and they're learning at an incredible rate but i feel bad for these people who retire when they're so old because they they don't know how to form a new lifestyle when suddenly they don't have to go to work nine to five man that that just uh it seems quite tragic to me so yeah it seems like we're beasts of burden to me mm-hmm. seems like we need to we, we dissatisfaction plays a part in our lives that's crucial indeed okay. all right well shall we shall we get to the dreams then yeah, let's do it. All right. I think this is the week where I get the higher grade. I'm pretty certain, um, but we'll, well see. That's, I, I have to agree with you there. Mine is, um, well, okay. Well, I'll, I'll Why don't you go maybe, first? Maybe it's the it's... best dream ever. Okay. okay. All right. Sure. All right. Um, I have just entered a small bathroom, and this is maybe in a high school. You know, I've noticed a lot of my dreams, by the way, have take place in some sort of school environment like a high school or a college but actually Mm. even more often it's like a high school or a middle school so that's interesting and they're usually dreams that make me uncomfortable or like have a slight overtone of discomfort or i should say Mm. undertone anyway um i've just entered a small bathroom and about and i'm and i'm about to use a urinal it's it's a small bathroom meant to be locked Someone is trying to come in, but I tell them I'm busy and must hold the door. And so I have to hold the door shut. For some reason, I don't lock it. Um, The door opens and a jock and his girlfriend enter and push me aside so the jock can use the urinal first. Um, And now this this to me feels like an injustice, you know, like someone cutting in line. And so I I punch him in the face. I just and I don't really Mm. remember how immediate this decision was, but I, I, I have to. I feel like I have to fight for my basic rights of, you know, I was here first uh, with violence. Uh, We begin fighting, during which I get some solid jabs in, but his friends appear. They're they're sort of, you know, in a dreamlike fashion, there's there's just one and there's two and then there's just more of them. Um, I notice also that his punches, to me, are extremely ineffectual. I also wonder how he's still showing no signs of tiring, given what seems like my good jabs. So it seems like I'm hitting him solidly. but he's not really being affected by it. Eventually, his friends restrain me because there's so many of them, and I'm at his mercy as a punching bag. I want to yell for help, but the previously bustling hall is empty. And that's the dream. I don't really huh. dream of being pummeled, but I, I dream of getting into the situation where that's clearly the next thing that's going to happen. Yeah, and this is the second dream you've had that you described on this podcast where you're in a physical fight mm-hmm. and eventually it leads to you being subdued. Like it doesn't seem like you sustain a lot of damage or dish a lot of damage out, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, you're just overwhelmed by the force of your opponent or opponents in this case. Yeah, and I noticed that too. There was a small difference that gives me a bit of hope because first of all, that you know that's quite a discouraging you know way to read it i don't think it's wrong though but one thing is that i didn't feel like it was so futile it felt like i was fighting effectively at least even though Mm. he didn't really seem to be showing any signs of being hurt uh but yeah Mm. there's definitely that um that that parallel there and i and i think probably some of it's related to the fact that i've started going to these self-defense classes although they've stopped ever since the lockdown um and i think also with this uncertainty with the coronavirus, you know, I've been hearing more and more, this may be a bit of a tangent, but I'm curious if it, have you been hearing more and more that people think it's not going to go back to how it used to be like that there will be some different way that culture will run after the virus. 
Yeah, that there is no normal to return to. I, I've had that. I, I've heard that idea, and I believe it myself to some degree. Okay, well, so, um, so I think it's you know, I don't know how great of a transition that's going to be, but I think that combined with these self defense classes have pushed me to consider, like, if I have to protect myself with physical force, how does that play out? And I think that I would guess that that is sort of providing a lot of the emotional. Um, draw maybe that generates these dreams where I'm fighting somebody because I think well especially I'm, I'm here in South Africa and you really have to worry about people breaking into your house like I've, I've woken up in the middle of the night because I know that I really should get up and investigate that weird noise so and the, all that leads to questions of yeah if I got into a fight how would that go so mm. um, I, I don't think that's the the entirety of the symbolism of the dream but I think that explains the you know the central place that these physical altercations um have in them yeah i think if i were to try to attempt to interpret that dream i would say that you see yourself in a fight against society and you feel powerful like not powerless or at least not equal to to the challenge mm. of like defending yourself from from the evils of society yeah, that's actually a, a quite a rich interpretation, um, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that actually lines up with, with um, quite a bit. I, I won't really go into it here because it would touch on my work. I'd have to go down a rabbit hole, but I think you're right. Hmm. Okay, well, I give that dream a uh, C plus, better than like just kind of average. Um, yeah, that's fair. short. Yeah, maybe short's sure good though. We we, it, it, I'm on the border of B minus as well. You could talk me into a B minus, but you know, I, you know, see to be honest, class. I <laughs> do I have to wear something sexy? Is it that kind of seat after class? Or? Yeah, I thought that was implied. <laughs> okay, so now it's awkward. Anyway, uh, no, I think C, C plus is fair. I think that's pretty fair. Okay. Um, all right, let's hear your dream. Okay, here it is. <clears throat> I enter a spacious room. There is a young woman to my left sitting and clearly busy with some task in front of her. There is also an older woman sitting in a chair with eyes closed. I go up to the older woman and sit down cross-legged. I feel reverent in this position. and There's almost something religious about my actions. I, I stare into the face of the woman and her closed eyes. Soon after I sit down, the woman's eyes open. They are completely black. There's no pupil or cornea and no white at all. Her eyes are completely black. She closes her eyes and reopens them several times. Not blinking, but a sort of methodical sort of opening and closing. And whenever she does this, she doesn't recognize me in any way. There's no sort of like change in her facial structure to notice that I'm sitting there looking up into her face, you know, not looking away, just looking intently at her face. And it occurs to me because of the way she's not reacting to me that she's some kind of doll or robot. Um, but uh, uh, shortly after I make this de deduction that she's not a real person, uh, she changes her bat pattern of opening and closing her eyes. She like tilts her head, to look at the young woman and she startles me further by standing up out of her chair and walking past me completely ignoring me the two women then begin talking in ukrainian i stand up to leave feeling a bit embarrassed i tell them also in ukrainian that i thought that they would be speaking english here the older woman turns to me her eyes are now normal in ukrainian she tells me she knows why i'm here she motions me over and opens her arms I understand what she means, and I step forward to embrace her in a hug. The woman was right. I feel that I got what I wanted. The dream ends before we are finished hugging. And that's, wow, that, that's the end. That that seems very symbolic. I mean, I don't. No interpretation jumps to mind, but it definitely just seems like there's a lot of. I don't know. It feels symbolic. I suppose, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Absolutely. well, I think I have uh, an idea, an intuition, perhaps, of what it means. Yeah, I'd love for um, you to 
open with that, please? I think it's my relationship with my mother. I think that um, it's kind of a strained relationship, and I feel like I don't know her very well. The, the relationship doesn't feel real to me. And I think mm-hmm. that's kind of what I felt in the black eyes. Um, and like, I, I very much felt like a child sitting there cross-legged. Like, when do you go to an adult and sit cross-legged and stare up into their face? I felt mm. childlike in that moment. And in the end, um, like that reconciliation with the eyes are back to normal. And like, as I'm embarrassed leaving, but she, she calls me back for a hug. Like, I, I think part, I just couldn't help but think that I recently heard that Mother's Day was coming up. And I, I try to call my mom. So I think that's part of why it entered my mind as well, is that sort of feeling of guilt whenever that sort of holiday comes around, like a birthday mm. or you know, mm. Mother's Day, Father's Day type of thing. I, I, that's my best interpretation of it right now. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Huh. That, still, I, I, I want to say again, it just feels so much more symbolic than the other, than the other dreams you've shared. It, almost, it, it, it Actually, it makes me wonder if the invest you know the um us digging into this book somehow opened the way for you to either have the dream or just remember it upon waking how do you feel about that that uh, proposition this dream was quite powerful in that usually i'll have a dream i'll wake up kind of delirious and kind of go back to sleep you know that sort of half the sleep mm-hmm. state and if i'm really serious i will wake up or sort of like rouse myself to write the dream even as I'm half asleep Mm -hmm. and this book is certainly and also our our commitment to sharing our dreams has made it so that I have more determination there's actually a reason beyond my own like interest in myself Mm. so that the book and the like us making a podcast has helped I think that I am gonna get I think I am getting better though like with the very genuine uh pieces of information that are dropped by you like about the meaning of symbols, about the importance of the symbols. I think, I don't know that my dreams are more vivid, but I think I'm better at interpreting them. And perhaps that cycle of being better interpreting them makes you pay more attention. So kind of a long Mm. way of saying, yes, Mm. I do think that this book is helping me understand my dreams and to have more compelling dreams or more memorable dreams. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm going to give that, uh, a minus, I think. Ooh, doggy. That's a good one. Yeah. What would it take for either of us to get an A plus? I, I was just we'll thinking that. See it. I, you know, I feel like, what would it take? It almost seems like the dream would have to be symbolic on like a, like a, well, because both of our dreams were quite personal. You know, I think mine, I mean, I guess they always are, but somehow... I don't know, somehow, maybe it's unrealistic, but somehow for me, I feel like for an A+, I'd have to be blown away in a way that's almost like you'd have to have a dream that's somehow beyond the personal. But I don't know if that's unrealistic, but that seems to be what I feel like I'm holding out for an A+. plus for. There's this dream in the Bible that I was recently reminded of that I think would be an A-plus dream. Other, and I think you also have to have the exact perfect interpretation, but I think the dream from the Bible says something like a king dreams of of 14 cows and seven of them are really fat and healthy and seven of them are like nearly dead and starving Hmm. and he goes to a wise man and the wise man interprets his dream as you will have seven years of bountiful harvest you'll just be overflowing your granaries but then you'll have seven years of uh uh, what, what would you say like not having enough um, whether through plagues or not like drought i think you'll have seven years of drought and so the king the story goes he said okay we need to save up as much as we can and sure enough he had seven years of amazing harvest but then he was able to survive the seven years of drought because he had so much food stored mm. up you know but that i mean how can you prove that you know if you just right. dreamed of seven 14 cows you wouldn't you wouldn't think that but like that that level of dream and like the sort of satisfying story that goes along with it would be an a plus yeah so that's a pretty high bar so maybe to like to to generalize that you could say a dream that is profound and actually gives you like a significant direction that turned out to be true and maybe it's maybe it's immediately the the you know the utility of it is immediately true maybe it doesn't need to be telling the future so much but like i don't know like maybe for example if i had a dream that convinced me oh my god i need to leave south africa right now and then like i leave and then a week later it's anarchy erupts like that maybe would be 
an A plus stream. Yeah, that's the tricky thing is we're giving ratings in the moment, whereas you almost need time to see how your yeah. reaction to the dream plays out. Did you All have right. the right interpretation or not? Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, I think we can wrap that up here. Um, I don't really have anything else to go over. No, I, I guess I did want to say, and it's not the right time per se, but you had earlier talked about Christian meekness oh, yeah. and um, and how that kind of is more about like speaking softly and carrying a big stick. Mm. And it just someone pointed out to me recently that another idea that comes from the Bible that has that feels similar is uh, like when someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. Hmm. And that does seem like a meek thing to do. Um, but actually, it could also be interpreted as an aggressive thing to do. Oh, yeah. Like, look how little you hurt me. Here's my other cheek. I'm not even going to try to defend myself. Slap me again. No, mm. You can't harm me. I thought that was, I just wanted to get that out. Yeah, that that phrase in the Bible. And, and just to be clear to the listeners, I've, I still have not read any part of the Bible seriously. I think I want to start reading Proverbs, though. I've, I've heard that's a good entry point. But anyway, uh, but I've heard that idea of turn the other cheek that's never made any sense to me. But just now when you described it that way, that is more graspable to me. Mm. Huh. Yeah, okay. All righty. Well, um, I suppose then we will end it here, and we will see you guys next time. Bye.